Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. All right, ladies and gents, welcome to this episode of Truth of Us. I'm Brendan, and I'm joined this week by a friend of mine, Francis Ailey, who is a monetary reformer who's been studying uh, economics money since he was a young lad of 15, and also uh, has a background in psychotherapy and a number of other things, quite, quite an accomplished character. So uh, we're going to talk about the monetary situation, the uh, financial system, the, some of the problems with it. Uh, we've just had the devastation of the floods in New South Wales, which has, I mean, just left a lot of people homeless. A lot of people have been put into extreme hardship. And um, and I think this is a perfect time to be seeding an idea like this into uh, a community encountering those types of challenges uh, where people have uh, people generally don't have a lot of money. So without further ado, Francis, um, let's let's talk about the monetary system, why it is so messed up, what the problem with it is, and then we can lead into uh, your solution. Because Francis actually has, I will just mention before I let Francis um, unleash him, Francis has utilized a system on the ground that's been employed and tested, been tried and tested. So this is not a theory. This is not a concept. We want to give some uh, give people, particularly um, in the times that we're in and the times that are coming, which are probably going to get harder, we want to give people something that is practicable it is usable right now it's not pie in the sky it's something that's been tested and we can start using it straight away it's actually being done as we speak in different parts of the world in little pockets of the world so francis what is the problem with our monetary system at the moment <clears throat> wow that's such a good question um i could talk about just that one issue for probably two hours without repeating myself <laughs> there are so many problems with the existing monetary system the list is a very long one, so I'm going to cut it down to like the bare essentials. Throughout history, all the major religions, the Christian religion, um, the Buddhist religion, the Taoist religion, and so on, they all forbade usury. Now, the reason they forbade usury is because they understood its antisocial nature. Usury destroys community, destroys relationships. I'm not going to go into all the technical details, but if you want to know more about how it does that, watch uh, a short video by Paul Brignon called Money as Debt. It's uh, an animated uh, little 40 number, uh, 40 minutes number, and it uh, explains in detail why usury is bad and how it creates antisocial behavior. So our money system, as we stand at the moment, the one we all use every day, uh, all the national currencies is based on usurious money. And originally for hundreds of years, people understood this as being antisocial. And 300, 400 or 500 years ago, when uh, people were trading, they weren't using usurious money. And that's a very important key point, but gradually in the last 150 to 200 years, all the major monetary systems have become more and more usurious. That's the first point. The second thing is that all the usurious 
monetary systems, the national ones, are controlled by private transnational corporations called banks. We don't usually describe them as transnational corporations or corporations. Um, we think of them as just banks. That's a bad way to think of them because the bankers are not the good guys. <laughs> and most people, I mean, 30 years ago, I remember a conversation I had with a good friend of mine back in the UK uh, before we moved to the USA. And he was saying, but our money supply is controlled by the government. And I, and I remember saying to him, prove it, demonstrate it. He was like, but the Bank of England is beholden to the government, the British government, and the British government controls our money supply. And I said, go and check that out and come back to me. He did. He went off, he checked it out. He came back and he's like, oh shit, it's a, a private corporation. And I said, that's what I told you. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, the government can put input. They can make recommendations, but actually the Bank of England does the hell what it likes. And I'm like, that's what I told you. <laughs> so when people go off and check this stuff themselves, they're like, oh, I didn't realize that was the situation. So the bankers have been telling us a pack of lies for a long time. Uh, and they've been disguising themselves as we're here for the people. We're providing you with a monetary system. It's a neutral medium of exchange. That's a whole can of worms later that we'll go into. Um, and, you know, we're the good guys. And actually, the opposite is true in every single case. So we have very serious problems with the existing monetary system. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, before I go into launching into all the lies that we're told by the bankers, the economists, and the politicians about what money is, how it works, and who controls it. So the second problem with our existing monetary systems is that the people don't issue the currency. Whoever controls the currency is the person who issues the money. If you issue the money, if I can create money out of thin air and I can create $20 billion, I mean, I, I have a lot of power and control. That is how much power and control the bankers have. So firstly, it's usurious, but secondly, it's issued by bankers uh, for profit, and that's an antisocial agenda. Completely agree. And, and fortunately, I would say most of, most of my audience has this a handle on this to some extent. So it's, it's, um, it's good that we're talking to a group of people who are kind of familiar with the problem. So for, yeah, I, your expertise, I know you could talk about it for ages, but um, luckily I don't want you to feel like you need to go into all the nitty gritty because we've kind of like, in this community, we kind of mostly get it. But yeah, please do continue with this explanation because even though I know it, I, I like the revision. I like to, to discuss this. I like to hear it be explained again by somebody new who's done their homework for many, many years. And, um, and I know that there are people even, some people who have really shocked me uh, with saying some of the things they've said about usury. Um, and not being, you know, it not being a problem supposedly in this type of thing. And I, I thought, wow, that was coming from certain people. That's a very strange sentiment for me, but, um, you, you obviously don't agree with that. Um, so people have been telling you that there's nothing wrong with usury. Oh, I've just, it's, I've had one or two people who I thought would have had a very different point of view on that, who are, have, have been quite knowledgeable in many areas who've said, oh, it's not, it's not a bad thing. And I thought, wow, coming from you, that's very strange. <laughs> One of the biggest problems is this is such a specialist field and the bankers have been pumping out so much propaganda for literally centuries, literally centuries. I'm, I mean, I've read texts from 1850 where, you know, some monetary reformer was challenging the um, usurious belief systems of the time. 
And the bankers would say, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. Don't look, don't look over there. I mean, literally, this is a case of like, don't look behind the curtain. And many people don't. So many people can have really accurate views about different topics. And then they come to money and they're just like, they, they just repeat the propaganda because they haven't actually done their own independent investigation. And so, yeah, many of the people I respect, they haven't got a clue when it comes to money. They're, they're completely in the dark. I mean, literally completely in the dark. They haven't even begun to investigate it. And it's one of those fields, unless you jump into it with both feet, there's no real reason to. I mean, why should you question what you've been told by the bankers and the economists and politicians? I mean, unless you meet someone like me uh, or someone else who's actually done the background reading and figured this stuff out to some degree, you don't really have a reason to question it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and I, I might ask you, um, over now or later, we can talk about it. We'll get a, I, I think I'll put on the page, I'll put a list, a short list of suggested or recommended reading materials that just get right to the heart of it. Because I know there's books out there like the web of debt by Ellen Brown, which is, um, a massive, amazing piece of work, stuff like that, that just blows the lid off it and exposes it for what it is, you know? So we can, we can talk about that either now or later if you like, but, um, yeah, please, I'll let you just continue. I don't want to keep interrupting you, but, um, just, just go with the flow here and, um, yeah, finish this, this, this thread of, uh, what the issue is with our current, current system and setup. <laughs> uh, well, money controls all our lives. I mean, you think about your life and is there any aspect of your life that isn't controlled by money? I mean, yeah, there are probably your really close relationships, you know, with your loved ones. And maybe one or two small areas, but 99% of our lives are, it's controlled by directly or indirectly the monetary system. I mean, do you have money? If you don't have money, you can't do certain things. And if you do have money, then it's a matter of how much money do I have? What can I afford? What can I not afford? What can I do? What can I not do? So what, what's happened in the last 120 years? is that money has come to control more and more and more and more and more of our lives. Now, that has taken away our freedom, our independence, and our capacity to operate as sovereign individuals. One of the most devastating things, which uh, Vandana Shiva talks about in her book, uh, The 1% Versus um, Oneness, Oneness Versus the 1%, that's the name of the book. She talks about how human beings have been Forcibly, this has been done to us. This is, isn't something that like, oh, it just happened. Yeah, it's not like we have been, right. <laughs> we have been disconnected from the land and the earth and the biosphere and the natural world. Now that has very, very serious consequences, which Fandano points out in that book. One of which is, if you think about the USA in 1900, 95 to 98% of everybody lived on the land. They grew their own food. All of it. They didn't go to the market to buy stuff. They were self-sufficient. They were sovereign individuals. They didn't need money. Their food supply was there right on the land that they lived on. You can bear that today. Where does the food come from? It comes from agribusiness. It comes from transnational corporations. It comes from organizations that are completely and totally outside of our control. That's not good. We have just lost a massive amount of our personal power, our collective power, and our freedom. Just in that one example. And you can repeat that in many, many other ways. My grandfather used to make his own tools. I mean, he made um, 
hammers and chisels. And he had a chisel that was like this long. And he said when he, when he was a kid, it was like this long. And he'd been filing it down and sharpening it for so long, it had like lost half its length. But he had that tool for like 45 years. And I remember picking it up and thinking, this is ancient. Like he replaced the handle like five times. And like he's been using the same chisel for over 40 years. I mean, this is crazy. And I'm like, we don't do this anymore. And it's like, why not? Because the chisels are made to break and to wear out and to not last 45 years. Um, and yet he knew the, the man who tempered the steel when he was a kid, uh, who made that chisel because he lived in the same village. We don't do that anymore. All our chisels, all our tools, all our goods and services pretty much come from outside. They don't come from the immediate local community. Mm, mm. So we don't have the same relationships with the people in our local community that my grandfather had. Mm. And, th and that's a problem. Why is that, why is that such an issue now as you see it? That's really a problem because if you don't have uh, an authentic, genuine, real relationship with the people in your community who potentially could be supplying you with the goods and services that they produce, um, then you don't have a community. You don't have a tribe. You don't have a network of people like my grandparents had um, in the north of England during the Great Depression. There were, there were 3,000 people in their village in Spennymoor and in the north of England, and they could rely on each other uh, 100%. They were seeing the tough times and the depression through together as a group, as a community, as a village. And that sense of community, that sense of being part of a village just, just disappeared. I watched it disappear in London uh, as a kid. As I got older, I watched it, that those social connections, those social bonds, that sense of community just disintegrate. Yeah. And it's been largely done through money. I mean, if people weren't using usurious bank issued money, uh, that could not have happened. Yeah, yeah. So why, what, what happens through this system that we have the dynamic in place actually drives wedges between people. So it seems that it, it, instead of fostering collaboration, it's, it's breeding competition. Absolutely. Yeah. Selfishness, greed, competition, all that antisocial behavior. And in order to justify it, what the economists tell us in all the mainstream economics books, I've, many of which I've read from cover to cover, um, they tell us that we're antisocial right at our core. And that as someone who worked as a consultant psychotherapist for uh, 14 years in the UK, I know that is a lie. That is a blatant lie. And it's a massive lie. There, there is a small percentage of the population, about 1% or less, who are hardened psychopaths, and I call them financial psychopaths, to distinguish between different types of psychopathy, uh, of which there are many. But the financial psychopaths are the people who run and own uh, and make all decisions about the world. They run the world. And many of them are in top positions of power politically and economically uh, in corporations. And these people should not be there. They're, they're not qualified to do that job. And they're the worst people we could have chosen. In fact, we didn't choose them. They put themselves there. But they're the worst people to allow to be running things. Totally. It, 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 I think the term for it is a cacistocracy, where you're ruled by the shittiest elements of society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, the other term is a kleptocracy, which is uh, 
um, the, the aura plutocracy, which is where the ruling elite who have all the money and they control the money supply. So they decide who gets money and who doesn't, um, and they control everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that's before we come to the criminal elements and the, you know, the, the, the kind of like, uh, shady side of all this, mm-hmm. which I don't plan to go into. I just want to stay with, you know, the, the, the straight kind of like how the straight money system is uh, screwed and how it's screwing us. So if we don't have control of the monetary supply, we don't have a way to build and maintain those social links with the other people in our society. Okay. So, yeah, please continue that thought. <clears throat> and that means our tribes, our groups, our communities have disintegrated in the last uh, 120, 150 years. Mm. Um, and I've seen the, the tail end of that. I remember talking to my grandparents about how they lived in a community, a village community in the north of England. And it was so different from the life that I was living just two generations later. And then I watched it get worse and worse and worse. So we have three kinds of alienation in the world. Again, this is from Bantana Shiva, uh, that are running rampant across the planet. The first is we're alienated from the biosphere, from the earth, from the planet. That has serious consequences. The second level, we are alienated from each other. So we've lost our communities. Mm-hmm. And the third level, which is equally serious, is we've, because of the first two, the knock-on effect is we've lost our connection with our soul, our spirit, and our higher intelligence and our innate intuitive wisdom. Mm-hmm. So those three levels of alienation are, have now, they're running rampant across the entire planet. Um, and they're destroying everything that makes life worthwhile and purposeful and meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is, I mean, what does the alienation from the planet you mentioned? And, and I think, you know, maybe that might sound a bit sort of abstract or vague to some people because they think, oh, well, I can look outside and there's trees and the grass and there's a mountain over there. So I don't feel alienated from the from planet, but there's <laughs> <laughs> only a bit more to it. Um, that's true. But looking at it but being, uh, is different from being part of it and feeling part of the natural world. When I was a kid, I was uh, in the Venture Scouts, and I would regularly go off to Dartmoor and Exmoor, the West Country in the UK, and spend just days, weeks, a couple of times, months out in the wilderness. And when I went, I went with minimal equipment. So the, the goal for me at the time was to live off the land. Uh, the way that my grandparents used to be able to do, because when they died, when I was 18, that, that went away, that disappeared. And I, I wanted to go backwards rather than forwards. And so I would spend time in the wilderness. I can tell you, there's a, a heartfelt connection that people have lost with the natural world and the biosphere and all the other life forms that my grandparents had that people today don't have. And generally, people from their generation did have that connection. And if you don't have that emotional connection, and that's the key part, it's an emotional connection. It's not a mental connection. I mean, yeah, I can look out and at the moment there's some beautiful mountains, it's a wonderful lake, but that, that doesn't mean I'm connected to it. I may be looking at it. That's got nothing to do with the actual emotional connection to it. You have to feel that connection. Uh, and when you do, it changes your experience of the natural world. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah so there's a difference between theory and actually feeling it in real time. Completely. And, and I guess part of that is the fact that nobody produces their own food anymore. Hardly anybody that does. 
Yeah. So how maybe we can segue into, I think you've given a pretty good explanation of, of what the fundamental driving force or the, the fundamental problems of the, the banking system, the economic system. I mean, is there anything that we've missed that we should touch on before we move forward? Uh, no, that's kind of like a brief outline. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, like I said, I could talk for two hours just about all the problems with the existing monetary system. But I think a lot of people, especially these days, when I was talking about this 30, 40, 45 years ago, I'd say, hey, I think we've got a problem with the monetary system. Nobody was interested. Nobody cared. They were like, what are you talking about? Shut up. Go away. <laughs> Stop annoying me. <laughs> um, and gradually over the years, what I've noticed is this change in attitude. Uh, today, when I say, hey, I think we've got a problem with the monetary system, most people are like, you know, I think you're right, but I don't understand it. And then when I get into a conversation with them, they're, they're not like, what are you talking about? That's crazy stuff. I mean, 45 years ago, I was literally called crazy. But I've kept at it, and I kept researching, and I kept on learning, and I've met, read all the monetary reformers from, from the past. Um, and now people's attitude is different. Um, people are actually waking up. Some people are. You know, there's a 15, 20% chunk of people who are actually like, I don't think the monetary system is supposed to work like this. That doesn't seem right to me somehow. <laughs> so I'm kind of more popular these days, you know. I'm being interviewed more, and people are contacting me more and asking very relevant and important questions. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, um, Francis, speaking of him being, you know, in demand and and, uh, and what have you, we, we listened to Francis present um, a talk a couple of weeks ago, actually, in, in the local area. And, um, yeah, I think there was a, a really good response to it. People really liked um, the idea that you uh, rolled out for them, the explanation of it. Um, and, and, you know, now, you know, like, like you say, people are waking up and we're being squeezed more and more and more. This, this system is yeah. so, it's, it's become so toxic to, to human health and well-being and sanity that more and more people are like, yeah, okay, there's a, clearly a problem here. What, what, what's going on? Tell me. And what's the solution? And then people are looking for solutions. We're being really forced to find other ways to survive. Um, and to get more inventive and ingenuitive. And I, I'm seeing it driving us back to each other to some extent as well. So we're being forced, people without money and being forced to find other ways to get by and to exchange goods and time and this kind of thing to, to make their life work. Uh, and that's where your, your model and your system comes in. Maybe, maybe it's time to segue into that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so. Over the last uh, 50 years that I've been a monetary reformer, I've created two alternative monetary systems. The first one, which I'm only going to mention briefly, is North London LEDs. LEDs stands for Local Exchange Trading System. And I created that in 1990 in London, UK. And unusually, the North London LEDs, instead of taking a really small local area, like say Kilburn or Kenish Town or Clapham, and creating a little LED system there, we were like, why, what, why just go for such a small scale? Why not try the whole of North London, like a much, much bigger area? At the time, that was incredibly experimental. And the other people who knew about LED systems said, that's not how you're supposed to do it. I'm just one of those chaps. I like to break the rules and I like to experiment. So I said, well, that may be not how you would do it, but we're going to try this for the whole of North London. Well, it turned out to be spectacularly successful at the time. And, um, yeah, it's a North London Let's has a long history. I believe they're still there. I mean, I haven't been associated with them for like the last 20 years. Um, uh, but yeah, the last I heard, they were still going. 
That was the first monetary experiment that I was involved in and initiated. The second one, after I moved to the USA, was in Bellingham, Washington State in the Pacific Northwest, beautiful place, or at least it used to be, um, until two years ago. Um, when I got to Bellingham, because I had this long history of monetary reform, um, I actually worked at the time, this is so ironic. I actually was not in the slightest interested in starting any kind of new, um, alternative monetary system, but I did mention it to a few people and they were so excited and so interested and they kind of dragged me along, got me to do some new member presentations and said, you know, we want to set up a lead system like you did in London in 1990. And I was like, that's great. You go for it. I'm going to sit over here and just relax and chill out. You know, I, I'm kind of like burned out. I'm tired. And they were like, but, but don't you want to help us? And I said, look, I'll give you all the help you need, but I am not going to set up a second lead system. And they were like, well, why not? And I said, it's faulty. I've learned so much about all these different kinds of monetary systems, like left systems, uh, time banks, um, Ithaca hours, uh, Berkshires, and they're all kind of like different systems. And each system has its own strengths and weaknesses. Um, if I was going to do something, what I'd like to do is look at all these systems and kind of look at what the strengths and weaknesses of each one of them is, and then choose the strengths from each of them and create a new system. And I said, if you guys want to do a lead system, I'll give you all the help and assistance and backup you need, but I'm not in it. You go and do it. So they were like, no, no, no. Why don't we do what you want to do? And I was like, oh, hell, here we go again. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this was in like 2002. So we formed a little committee and for two years, um, I'll give these prep, uh, people their credit. They, they investigated all this stuff that I'd read and they went off and read some of the, the books that I'd read and, and we came back and we had some phenomenal discussions that went on for hours and hours and hours. So they really educated themselves after two years and after two years, they said it, it kind of coalesced. It became a kind of group consensus that there were certain characteristics we wanted, uh, in a monetary system that was alternative to the mainstream and we put it all together. And they said, let's launch this. Would you be a part of this? And a good friend of mine, a guy called John Ruth at the time, I said, John, if you're in, I'm in, let's do it together, you know, with this group. And so we launched it and we launched fourth corner exchange in 2004 in Bellingham. And it was, uh, hard work to begin with. It always is starting a new group with a new idea that's out of the box and non-mainstreaming. You have to explain everything to every. Everyone who comes along from scratch and some people get it and some don't, and some get half of it, uh, but they need some more kind of like encouragement or information. But gradually over the space of about uh, two years, um, a lot of people got interested and a lot of people signed up and a lot of people started trading. And in 2005, we were doing this with a ledger book. We didn't have the internet or the internet was there, but we didn't have a website and we weren't using the internet. We started with a ledger book. And in 2004, to make an, an, an exchange on false corner exchange, you had a printed copy of everyone's offered and wanted listings, and you would scan through it to see if someone did car repairs or if someone did a taxi service. And then you'd call them and then you would do the exchange. And then when you'd finished, the person who was paying would call the administrator and say, Hey, Janet, would you please credit this person with X number of life goals from my account. 
and she would manually enter it into a legible. Well, after a year of doing this, Janet was really busy. <laughs> she was doing exchanges every, you know, every day, and the legible was getting really cumbersome. Um, so we thought, yeah, it's time to get a database. It's time to get uh, online and to get a website. So we got a website, and um, we were online. And ever since then, we've, we've been online. <clears throat> and Falls Corner Exchange is still around. It kind of like peaked in about 2010, 11, thereabouts. Um, and that was a fantastic experiment because <clears throat> the specific way that people did the exchanges and the unique characteristics of that particular monetary system had never been tried before in that particular combination. And it was a spectacular success. Mm. Mm. Yeah, amazing. So <clears throat> that lasted for quite a few years. <clears throat> and um, because we ended up with over 800 people, 900 people, I believe, at one point, um, uh, our group was actually infiltrated by whoever does this. And there was an attempt to take over the core uh, administration group. Um, and the first attempt I saw coming from a mile away, it was obvious what was going to happen. And I warned everybody else in the group. So when these three people who joined attempted to take over the group, we were well prepared and we did, we uh, just put out a circular to the membership and said, it looks like there's a takeover attempt uh, of our core group, you know, would you like to throw these people out? And so they were just thrown out. The second attempt, attempt was a little more sophisticated um, and the people who were doing it were very clever, very intelligent. I kind of had a hunch about them. Um, but they got into our core group. They were there for like a year and a half, two years. They really embedded themselves. They looked authentic and genuine. And then they made a ta takeover attempt, which I also predicted. Um, and there was a nasty confrontation between the old core group and these three new members. And they were trying to take over the control of the membership. Um, I was personally slandered. They were going around saying things about me that were completely untrue, um, and which I ended up threatening one of them with uh, legal action. I said, listen, if you continue to, to continue to do this, I have proof that you've slandered me. So I'm, I'm going to take you to court and I'm going to sue you. And so they eventually realized that it wasn't going to work and they went away. That was the second attempt. The third attempt to destroy full point exchange came from the outside. Whoever was doing this had failed twice by trying to infiltrate the group. That's the fastest and simplest way to do it. It takes less energy and time. Uh, both had failed. So they hit us from outside and all, all I, I didn't realize this was going on at the time. The first two attempts were obvious, uh, but the third attempt was uh, coming from outside and it was invisible. And it was a slander campaign, kind of word of mouth, but behind the scenes. So I didn't start to find out about it until six months later, which was too late to stop all the damage. Um, and then for years afterwards, I, met, I kept on bumping into people who were like, was all that stuff that I heard about full point exchange true? And I was like, well, what did you hear? And they tell me all the stuff they'd, they'd hear. And I say, well, do you think it's true? And they were like, well, I'm beginning to think it wasn't true. And I said, well, so you bought into it and you believed it at the time. And now you're discovering it's not true. This sounds like something that's been happening really recently, doesn't it? <laughs> if you people, think about it. People being deceived. <laughs> yeah, I know. It can't happen. It doesn't happen. Yeah, sure. Um, so that's what happened. And we ended up uh, being reduced down to about 100 members or less. Um, but Fourth Corner Exchange was not destroyed. It's still going. 
And um, now there's a little bit of a revival coming back. And I've seen it kind of like go up and down like this. Um, some of the chapters, we had a chapter in Bellingham. We had a chapter in Portland, Oregon. We had a small group in Seattle. And we even had uh, uh, briefly chapters in New York and several other places. And I believe there were five groups in Canada or different parts of Canada, one in um, Vancouver, BC, another one way over on the East Coast. Um, so, yeah, local chapters of uh, Full Point Exchange would pop up and last for a while and then disappear again, you know, throughout that whole history. Mm. But I believe that Full Corner Exchange is one of the top three alternative monetary systems that's ever been created in the last hundred years. Uh, we've done so many, our members have done uh, so many exchanges of goods and services. I mean, it's a massive amount of goods and services. So we're definitely in one of the top three most successful alternative uh, currencies that have ever been created. Uh, and um, yeah, it's still there. So if you want to join, you can still join. Yeah. But I'll give you and the details at the end. Yeah, we will do that. Um, can you give us a, a, an idea of, like, you know, how the system works basically for people? Because we, we want to encourage people um, to, to jump in and be, be a part of this. So how does, how does this work? It's basically very, very simple. You start with an account that starts at zero and you can uh, buy goods and services from other people. And when you do, your account goes down and their account goes up. So in that sense, it's like a let system. But the disadvantage of the let system is they have tied the value of their currency to the national currency. And when I started North London Let's, I didn't realize just how much of a disadvantage this would be um, but over the years, as I watched the British pound inflate the way that all national currencies are, I realized like that was a bad idea. It, you shouldn't tie the value of the currency to the national currency because then as the national currency inflates, your currency is inflating. So bad idea. The disadvantage of time banks is that um, a traditional time bank as created by Edgar Kahn, who wrote a book called Time Dollars, um, in his system... The, everybody's time is worth the same. Now, if you're only dealing with kind of like grassroots goods and services, that's probably okay. But as soon as you bring businesses on board and professional people on board, you know, as a professional psychotherapist in the UK, I would charge eight, nine, 10, 12 times the going, the living wage in my area uh, for my, my services uh, because, you know, I was a very highly paid professional and I was a consultant. You can't do that in a traditional time bank. So we decided we weren't going to do that, but we did use a time-based system. So our currency is time-based, but we haven't got that time um, group restriction of making everybody's time valued the same. Mm -hmm. um, so when you do exchanges, it's between you and the other person. You decide what's going to be exchanged, when, where, and how, and how much it's going to cost in life dollars. And so the two people who are doing the trade, I mean, there's two years of discussion. One of the things that kept, kept on coming back is what are we, how are we going to value the currency? And do we legislate or try and control how people do the exchanges? And we thought, why, why should we do that? Let's give people complete freedom to uh, decide how much they're going to charge and how they're going to do the exchange. We give them the power. So we give the members the power to make those decisions. 
And the value of the currency is one hour of time in your local area uh, at a basic living wage, not minimum wage, a good basic living wage averaged out. Um, and that's the value of our currency. And that was, again, very experimental in 2004. And when we launched it, we were like, wow, this might just fall flat in its face. It may work. It may not work. We don't know, but we're going to give it a go. It's worked superbly well, absolutely superbly well. The reason being that most people do 95 to 98% of their trades within a 15 or 20 or 25 mile radius of where they live. So most of it's local. And when I lived in Bellingham, I went around to all the local organic farmers and I said, hey, look, I'd love to buy your produce, but I'm a member of Hawthorne Exchange and we use life dollars and this is how it works. Would you be willing to consider signing up? And then I can pay you in, in life dollars. And then we're completely outside of the mainstream monetary system. And if that collapses and disintegrates and disappears or massively inflates or both, um, we're not going to be affected by that. And so a lot of local organic farmers signed up. And so I was and my family and many of my friends were getting fresh organic vegetables, handpicked. We would go into the fields and pick them and we were paying local currency for it. And it was completely outside of the mainstream monetary system. Now, you can do that with all your goods and services. I also had a mechanic in Bellingham who uh, I talked him into signing up. And he said, well, I can accept life dollars for my hours, like the time I'm putting in. But, you know, if your car needs a new carburetor, I can't pay life dollars for that. And I said, no problem. You give me two sets of bills, right? One bill for uh, what you paid in USD and the other bill for your time in life dollars. And he was like, oh, that, that'll work. Yeah, that's cool. So every time I took my car to be in service or repaired, he'd give me two bills, one in USD and one in, in life dollars. And that worked beautifully. Yeah, I love it. I love it. This is this is great. And, you know, I like the part about it, you, it's, it's local. You can keep things local almost all of the time. So now we're sort of reinvigorating the local economy and, and rebuilding local community. And people are going to get, get connected right. and know each other better than they ever have. Right. Mm. But the advantage of um, Portfolio Exchange is it's local, but some of the programming that uh, we needed done on the database, which was like um, very complicated and I just didn't want to do it. I'm a programmer too, but I, I didn't have time or energy or interest in doing that. Um, I called a guy in Portland who was an ACE programmer and I said, hey, can you do the programming? So that was like remote goods and services. He didn't have to be in a local community. Mm. And so we paid him life dollars. Um, and so you can use it locally, but for those odd things you need from outside of your community, you can use our currency for those things too. In fact, you can use it internationally. We had members in Bellingham trading with members in um, Vancouver, BC at one point. So this is an international, no borders currency, and you can trade with any other member anywhere else in the world. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Um, and so we've already covered um, how it works. We've covered use cases we've seen how it's played out in the real world we've tested it um what about what about some of the common you know when you introduce this idea to somebody who doesn't know how it works they haven't seen it work what are some of the most common uh, objections that get raised <laughs> oh gosh um there's all kinds of stuff um and before i go into those it's interesting just to notice that when I talk to someone and they say, yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about this other thing? You know, oh, and that can't work. Everything they say comes from a place of fear. Mm. 
That's the key thing to understand. And they're usually in their head rather than kind of like feeling into it uh, or getting it intuitively. So if they're only coming at it from the rational mind, I could talk to them for like four hours. And at the end, they'll just walk away and say, oh, that's not going to work. So you can waste a huge amount of time and energy talking to people if they're only engaged with their rational mind. So I've learned over the years that the way to, to uh, if you like, sell this idea is to talk to, firstly, the women, because for some reason, the women get it a lot more quickly and easier than the guys. I think they're more open to their intuit intuition, and so they're more present, and they're also more socially oriented. Mm -hmm. So anything that's like building relationship, the women tend to get it first, and the guys eventually get there, but it takes them a little while. <laughs> um, so I used to, to uh, talk with people for hours and hours and hours, and then they'd go away, you know, especially the guys, and they, they wouldn't do anything. It would lead to nothing, and they still wouldn't be convinced. So when I talk to people, I try and, and talk to them about it from an intuitive perspective, and I try and engage with them emotionally because uh, that, that really works. But the kind of objections are, I remember when I was in the UK like 35 years ago, I'd do a presentation for, um, you know, a LED system or whatever. I used to travel around the country um, uh, talking about LED systems and promoting them. And um, one of the first things that people in the UK also would say is that's illegal. And I'm like, okay, well, tell me the law that, that we're breaking. And they couldn't. And I said, it's very interesting that you think it's illegal. Like, how did you come to that conclusion? And eventually they'd admit that it was like, well, it just, it's just the impression that I've got. And I'm like, well, where did you get that impression from? And they're like, well, from reading mainstream economic textbooks, the bankers have the legal right to create currency. Nobody else does. So it's illegal. And then I tell them the truth, which is actually, we're actually so sovereign individuals from a legal perspective in some respects, not all respects, but from this respect. We're sovereign individuals, and if I, you and I de uh, decide we want to enter into a legal contract that involves some kind of exchange of goods and services outside of the banking system, there's nothing to stop us from doing that, absolutely nothing, except the wrong ideas you have about how economics works and how exchanges work. Mm. And that's usually, that's usually quite a shock to people. Um, today, that's less of a shock. Um, but but people still believe things like the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are controlled by the British government and the American government, not that way around, the other way around. Um, so people believe that the governments have control over the bankers. And I'm like, no, they don't. The bankers are basically financial psychopaths from my perspective. That's my assessment and analysis. And they don't have your best interests even on their gender, it's not even at the bottom of the gender. It's not even on their agenda. So they don't give a damn about you. Um, and there's absolutely nothing legally to prevent you or I. And as far as I'm aware, in every country, the legal situation that I've explored, um, there's no country in the world where it's illegal for us as sovereign individuals um, to exercise our liberty and create our own monetary system. And it changed our goods and services in a manner of our choosing with anyone else. In five years' time, this might be illegal if things go the kind of way that, you know, it's looking like they're going. Um, or it might not. We don't know. Mm. But um, certainly something like fourth corner exchange is more 
essential and necessary today than at any other time in history. So, you know, in terms of the objections that are, are raised, um, rather than go into all those objections, I'd rather talk about what happens if we don't do this today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because the consequences are going to be very negative, very nasty, and very serious for all of us freedom-loving people. If basically, if you like your freedom and you want your exchanges, your capacity to exchange your goods and services with other people to stay in the realm of freedom, then you're going to need to start looking at alternative monetary systems uh, because the bankers are now, as a cartel, they're now a global cartel and they want to limit our freedom and limit uh, and control every aspect of our lives, right down to who we can and cannot trade with. Mm. And they control the currency. And so they actually have the legal power to do that. One of the things I usually tell people at my new member presentations and the other presentations I do is that um, <clears throat> I ask, usually ask it as a question, is the money in your bank your money? And most people will say, yeah, yeah, of course it is. You know, I can write a check and... You know, I could do an electronic exchange. And I'm like, yeah, but do you actually own that money? And most people will say, yeah, I own it. I control it. That's my money. And then I talk about um, the two court cases uh, or three. I don't remember which it is um, that have occurred. And I think this is in Ed Kahn's book, Time Dollars. Um, he was actually an attorney. Um, and he quotes court cases where the bank, uh, there's one case I remember in the USA way back in the 20s where the bankers refused to give someone their money. And this chap lived in a village somewhere in a remote rural area in the USA. And so he took them to the court. And so there was a long legal battle and it went up to a very high level of the legal establishment because the lower courts actually couldn't decide. They're like, well, we don't know. We're going to pass it up to the next uh, court up. And eventually, uh, one of the state courts made a ruling and the ruling was this, the, the money that you give to the bank, the bank now owns and it's their money. And effectively, you have an IOU note from the bank to you, but they don't have to honor that. They don't have to actually give you your money. So that money is not actually your money. That's a legal ruling. And there was a second court case where someone else challenged it many years later, and the courts decided the same thing. So in the USA, and it may be different in other countries, but in the USA, that money is not your money and you don't control it. You think you control it. You think you, you it's your money. This is one of the many, 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 many deceptions that the bankers perpetrate. They lead you to believe it's illegal to create your own money. They lead you to believe that money in, in your bank account is your money. It's not. Yeah. They control it. Yeah. I, I would expect that to be the same case in most most countries. Uh, um, since you know, most countries are controlled by the same cartel. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's been some pretty good demonstrations of that lately, Francis. You know, you would have seen with the, you know, the trucker convoy and people donating money. Uh, people have had their bank accounts shut down because they donated exactly. money to the campaign. I mean, and there's nothing they can do. There's no recourse. You know, the government is off really com completely corrupt, completely just working for the, the corporatocracy, the bankers. Um, so we're seeing like real life cases, the, the examples of what you're saying really being true. And also this is why we need to start getting behind something like false corner exchange as well, because it's, you know, 
obvious that this whole economic system that is absolutely psychotic. And yeah. it, it just like almost like it's anti anti human, anti life. So um, we want to we want to provide the remedy for that. So I see moving in this direction as as being part of the the solution for that. Me too. Me too. Um, and it's really interesting because um, I remember five years ago saying to people. Um, you know, the bankers have complete control of our monetary supply. And even five or six years ago, people were like, no, I don't really buy that. Today, that's obvious. Mm. Nobody was, nobody's saying that to me now. So again, people are very slowly, but, you know, absolutely consistently actually waking up to the truth and the reality to stuff that I knew 45 years ago. And that's such a pleasure to see. It's like, yeah, people are waking up. Not everyone, but a significant proportion of the population is waking up and seeing what's really going on and seeing the invisible power structures behind all the surface stuff. You see, this is something else that I've, I've been talking about for years. Um, behind the facade of the reality that's presented to you by the bankers, the economists, the politicians, there is a series of hidden power structures and the monetary system is one of those power structures. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the, the example that I usually give is think about if all your money disappeared, your bank issued money disappeared, could you do anything? And the answer for most people is no, not really. You'd be evicted. You, you'd uh, lose your car. You'd lose your home. Uh, you wouldn't be able to buy food. You'd be able to do absolutely nothing. Now compare that with maybe my grandparents who didn't have any money. Um, and they were sharing everything they had with everybody in the village and they managed to scrimp and scrape and coll collectively get by by supporting each other and i've got lots of stories i could tell i'm not going to tell them here uh about that that time period that my grandmother told me when i was 15 years old um the point is that as individuals we're very helpless and powerless but when we come together in a group we become very powerful very quickly and it's exponential that every one person that groups and uh, joins the group, um, it's not just a one more person. Um, the, the, the power that people gain is exponential. So a group of a hundred people is a lot more powerful than a group of 10 people, but not by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. It's much more, it's like more like a thousand. Wow. So <clears throat> as fourth quarter exchange grows and expands and um, you have access to all those different uh, goods and services of the other people in the trading network. Whether or not the bank-issued monetary system survives or not becomes less and less of an issue. Mm. And when I was in Bellingham, um, we, we couldn't get to pay our rent, but some people did. Some of the other members actually got to pay part of their rent in the local currency. Um, but my family got nearly all our food Um uh, the, the chickens and the eggs and all our vegetables and sometimes grain foods too from the people in the local area. And we were paying only local currency. So you can actually become completely self-sufficient and detach, unplug completely from the bank-issued monetary system if you choose to. Um, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes work, and it takes building goodwill with the other members in the group. Mm. There are three things that have been destroyed by the uh, usurious bank issued monetary system. One is trust between people. The second is goodwill. And the third thing, which is the key one, is working towards the common good of everyone, 
and not just yourself. So what the bankers tell us is real greedy, selfish, uh, antisocial, cutthroat. That's how the world works. Actually, that's not how the world works, but that's how the financial psychopathic world works mm. for that less than 1% of the people uh, that run this system. For the 99%, us, the rest of us, we're actually pro-social. They are antisocial, and we are mainly pro-social, and yet they've been telling us that we're antisocial, and that's basically one of the biggest lies that we've been sold uh, over the last like 120 years. Yeah, And yet we- they keep on pushing that line. Yeah, are they going to exploit that that whole Darwinian um, paradigm to the fullest extent possible by the looks of it? Um, but it's obvious to me. I mean, even I've noticed over the last year um, being in contact with people who have a, a radically, radically different outlook on the world and how the world works from me. You know, people who've gone and got the juice, and um, and they are every time I end up in a conversation with one of these people, and it's kept happening repeatedly over the last few months without me looking to, for it to happen. But I keep having these encounters with people. And time and time again, what I see is that they are fundamentally, deep down, they are good people. They mean well. They have a level of concern and caring and compassion for their fellow community members, the people around them. But they've just been manipulated into a state of fear and they, they're not well-informed and they don't understand what's happening. But they, deep down in the core, there's basically a good human there. And so even though they see the world in a radically different way and they're not well involved in certain key areas, it's like, okay, you know, we do, we are inherently, obviously we're social animals. That means we have to get along with each other for a start, but we do have a concern and care. And I keep seeing this play out, play out, play out, people with good hearts, good hearts. And we just, we've lost that connection. We've, like you've been saying, we've allowed the system to pull us apart and separate us and put these like financial wedges in between us. And now we're competing to survive instead of collaborating to to thrive that right. sounds like a, a horrible cheesy cliche <laughs> yeah 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 and i've got a, a story uh, that i want to share with you when i founded north island Blades and we'd been trading for two years one of my best friends at the time was a guy who worked in the city of london this guy was a multimillionaire, and when he operated in the city of london um, and I used to go, he was a drinking buddy. I'd go drinking with him and a whole bunch of other people from the city. I used to know a whole bunch of people from the city back in those days. And he was vicious. When he was trading on the floor, he was vicious. He was a psychopath. He was like cutthroat. He'd rip you to shreds financially uh, and economically. Um, and he was kind of like that in, in real life too. You know, when he left the, the trading floor, um, you know, if he could screw you over for a couple of bucks, he'd do it. And everybody knew that. And everybody kind of like loved him and hated him at the same time. But you knew who he was and you, you, you knew how he operated. Well, he found out I was doing North London Lest. And he came to a new member meeting and I was praying that he wasn't going to join. He joined. And I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> shit. And I went to the management group and I said, I think we've got a problem here. You know, I know this guy. Firstly, he's a multimillionaire, so he doesn't need our services. He doesn't need to be part of this 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 network. And secondly, he's a financial psychopath, full blown. So I don't know what the hell's going to happen. And they were like, "Oh my god, oh my god." So we talked it over, and we thought, well, there's no reason we shouldn't just give him a chance. Like we don't know what he's going to do. Let's not prejudge him. Let's just see what happens. 
And so the first couple of trades he tried doing, because our system is pro-social, and he was a financial psychopath, so he was very antisocial. Um, he was trying to rip everybody off. And so what eventually happened was people realized he, he, he wasn't in here to, to work for the common good. Um, and after he tried to do and failed to do several trades, he came to me and he was like, I don't understand this system. Like, what's going on here? I'm, you know, this isn't working for me. And I'm like, thank God. <laughs> and I said that to him. And I said, you're a financial psychopath. You know, when you work in the city of London, you have this way of operating that's just like cutthroat, merciless and cutthroat and bloody. And I said, that might be appropriate up there, but it's, it's the opposite here. And he couldn't get it. He was like, what the hell are you talking about? But he was a very, very intelligent guy. And he realized there was something happening here that he was very interested in. And it took him a, about 10 days. And he came back and he said, I think I got it. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> anyway, he changed the way that he operated psychologically. And he started adapting and doing what I was telling him to, to instead of looking out just for your own interest, try looking out for the best interest of the other person, as well as your own, like not being self-sacrificing, but as well as your own, so that you're actually balancing it. And that was such an alien idea for him. He, he found it very, very difficult to do, but he forced himself to do it. Amazing. Over the next year, he became one of the most high, uh, uh, highest trading people in the network, and he began to really enjoy it. And the reason was he discovered authentic relationships. Didn't exist in the city of London. Everything was like cutthroat. You didn't trust anybody. You know, you're always expecting people to stab you in the back. And here he was like, this is cool, man. I really enjoy this. We grew up together. Uh, we were both hippies together before he joined the city of London. <laughs> um, he said, this is fantastic. This is like all the pro-social behavior that you keep on talking about that I've never experienced that I didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. He said, I love it. And so he had this dual life. He had the city of London life where he was a full-blown financial psychopath <laughs> and totally successful. And then he'd come and trade in North London Leds and he hit all his sympathetic, emotional, soft, caring, compassionate side would come out. And so he got the best of both worlds. And believe it worked. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. It took me months to realize like, no, this is actually working for the guy. I can't believe it. I think I would have never have said that this was possible. Yeah. But it worked for him. So it's, it's, it's not just financial possible when people change their mindset. It's psychological reform as well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love he that. He became really popular. He was so popular. Everybody loved him. Oh, he's such a nice guy. And I'm like, you don't see him in that other arena. <laughs> so I just kept my mouth shut. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm glad that's your experience. Wonderful. Yeah. I know him in a different context. I <laughs> uh, love it. But that just goes to show, you know, that's, that's that intrinsic um, the intrinsic goodness of the human that just needs an opportunity to be expressed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like, I feel like people who've been listening to this now, I probably have a good feel, a reasonably good feel for the gist of it, what this looks like, how it sort of works, um, the exchange based nature of it. Um, do we need to, do we need to just quickly, uh, the life dollars aspect of it, maybe is there anything we've missed there or do we need to sum it up, wrap it up quickly? Just that aspect, because I feel like there's going to be people who want to want to hear that part of it again, how the life dollars connects into people's activities and exchanges. 
Um, yeah. <clears throat> One of the other things you need to know is that your account starts at zero, but you don't need to earn before you can spend. There's um, a social credit limit. That used to be a, a positive term. That actually used, used to be a social credit movement in Canada founded by C.H. Douglas way back in the 20s and 30s. And they actually got uh, members of parliament elected to the Canadian government. And that was a big movement in Canada. And they were all monetary reformers. Uh, unfortunately, since then, that those words social credit have become um, ugly and evil because of what's happening in, in China. But essentially, you can take credit uh, from the group so you, you don't have to earn before you spend. You can spend up to a limit. Um, so you can spend about roughly 200 USD dollars worth of goods and services uh, before you need to earn. And that's one of the unique features of our system. Um, not many other groups do that. They do that in LEDs to a certain degree. Um, but some of the less systems I've, I've looked at and uh, the people I've worked with, it doesn't tend to work very well. In our system, it's the goodwill and the trust and the working for the common good that makes the system work. Um, and so you've got that credit right from square one, right from the beginning. Um, and so you don't have to then go out and try and find other people who you sell your goods and services to. You can actually start spending as soon as you join. And that's a pretty unique feature. Um, again, there's a limit to it. And the more you exchange goods and services within our group, that, that, uh, limit gradually increases and increases. Um, and uh, that's kind of like a natural function. Like when you join a new group, people don't know you. And so they're kind of like, well, I don't know who you are. You know, we'll give you a little bit of social credit. But, you know, when I've done 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 exchanges with you, then, uh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're good. You know, we've done plenty of exchanges. And so I'll extend you more credit and more trust. And so that's kind of how it works. So the trust and the, the level of credit kind of go hand in hand, they're parallel. So that's something you need to know before you join. Um, there's a couple other things, but most of it's in the member handbook. So when you sign up, download the member handbook and read through it. It was written by my wife. Uh, it tells you how to do all the mechanical stuff, how to find another member, how to find uh, goods and services. Oh, the other thing you need to know is there's two sets of listings. There's the things you're offering. Like I offer computer services, I offer uh, teaching people how to use Linux. I, I don't use, haven't used Apple Macs or uh, Windows uh, for such a long time. I can't remember, it's over 25 years. Uh, I'm a Linux guy. I'm also a programmer. So I do programming and database maintenance if you need that. Um, and I teach people how to use an operating system that's completely open source and um, completely private. I mean, you can actually use Linux and be completely private. Most people don't realize that. They, they think you have to use an Apple Mac or Microsoft Windows, and um, they never feel safe, and they never feel secure. They, they never know whether or not the conversation is being listened into. Um, I use Linux, and uh, my security is 100%, and my privacy is 100% as a result. Mm. So I teach people how to use all of the tech stuff. Um, so there's the offered listings, and those are things like, yeah, I have these goods and services, and you list each one of them. But there's also a set of wanted listings. So people who need something say, hey, I need someone to babysit on Saturday between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Can you do it? And then you can go through the wanted listings. So when you sign up, 
the way to get into trading real fast is go through the wanted listings in your local area um, and see what people need mm-hmm. and start answering those wanted listings and then start building up a good reputation um, with, with the people in your area. There's uh, a feedback. So every trade, you get a positive, negative, or neutral feedback, and people can write comments, and then you can respond to that if you think that was a fair comment or if you think that was an unfair comment. So there's a little bit of interaction, but then it stops there. You know, you give a basic feedback, and the person has a chance to, to respond. But there's uh, a, an, an assessment, a percentage, um, like from 0% up to 100%. And if your trading percentage is below 95 or 90%, I would say 90%, then um, there's there's probably something going on there. I mean, you know, if you're getting less than 90% positive feedback, um, I, w- I would seriously think twice about trading with a person. Uh, my, my feedback is not perfect. I think it's like 96% of the moment because, yeah, you know, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of exchanges. But not all exchanges go the way you, you think they're going to go. And sometimes, you know, the person had an expectation and I thought they wanted something, but they wanted something else. So, you know, sometimes I get neutral. I think I've got one piece of negative feedback because uh, the, the whole exchange went AWOL. Um, so nobody has 100 Well, actually, quite a few people have 100%, but they don't always keep that. So, you know. Yeah, But you can look at that percentage and get a feel for like, oh, this person's got 96, 98, 99, 100% feedback. Wow, all their exchanges have been super successful for, for them and the other person. So there's that feedback system. So your reputation in the system is crucial and very important. Yeah, absolutely. And it should be, you know, it's like you, you should be, you walk out the street and you, your neighbors should be able to look at you and go, that's a trustworthy guy. You know, I, you know I'll give him a hand, I'll learn him something, I know I'll get it back, whatever, you know. Um, yeah. Integrity. So, okay, so I, I think that's a great, um, a great overview and explanation. Um, I, I know you've also got an appointment, so I don't want to keep you any longer than we need to. Um, but what we're going to okay. do, Francis, is we're going to encourage everyone who hears this, um, and, and you know we've got the Northern Rivers and, and New South Wales in our minds because of the what's just happened there because we think it's going to be super helpful for that region. But everybody who hears this can benefit from this and use this system. So we're going to encourage everyone to do that. And what we're actually going to do is uh, I had a link here. Excuse me. Um, we're going to direct people to sign up to Fourth Corner Exchange via this link. So it's brendanmurphy.global slash slash exchange and then we're, we're going to have on that page to make it even easier for people to sign up and get started we're going to have a little video that amy will put together which ex- which explains and shows people visually how to actually sign up and set up your account and get going and then obviously like you said francis they'll be able to download uh the member the handbook and 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 get going from there so we're going to try and make it as simple as possible i'll just read that at brendanmurphy.global slash exchange and go and get started. Join Fourth Corner Exchange. Um, it really has nothing to do with me. I'm just providing an, an avenue that's uh, very just going to make it even more seamless. We want to create it as, as easy as a user experience as possible, um, and uh, and welcome everybody in there. We're going to well, uh, actually, I won't mention that because that'll be covered on that page. So, um, is there anything else that you would like to mention, Francis, um, before we wrap it up? I guess I, the last thing I'd like to say is this is the future. The free people of the world now have to come together, unite, 
and take back our economic power because that economic power has been stolen away from us. And we have to initiate taking that power back. And fourth corner exchange is one of the most powerful ways that I, in the whole 50 years that I've been uh, a monetary reformer and reading it, exploring this topic, it's one of the most powerful ways for us to do that. So if you like freedom and you want your liberty, this is how you take your power back from the bankers. Beautiful. So let's go do it, people. Let's take back our power and create our own highly functional pro-social economic systems. Exactly. Beautiful. We can move away from the psychopathic financial system. Absolutely. I second that motion very, very strongly. So ladies and gents, let's go sign up to Fort Corner Exchange. Brendan Murphy, dot global slash exchange. I want to thank Francis Ailey for being a fantastic guest and for this work that he's been doing for so long now. I'm more than happy to get behind it and support it. Francis, I really appreciate you joining me to have a chat about this. Wow. I am so grateful. Thank you, Brendan. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure, mate. All right. Enjoy the, enjoy the rest of your day. Will do. Take care. That's soon. <laughs> These days, positively charged toxic EMFs are everywhere, but your biofield runs on a negative charge, just like your body's cells. So how do you protect it? I've been using organ effects products like the GeoCleanse and Enerband for years because their technology addresses what others don't, that is the toxic positive charge of harmful EMF, neutralizing it. Head to brendanmurphy.global slash EMF to learn more and get yours and enter Murphy at checkout for 10% off. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network. It's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.